Hello, and welcome to Saga Briefs, where we look into the stories behind the sagas. Over the past few years, many of you have written to us about your fascination with runes. And while John and I both teach runes in our History of the English Language courses, and we share your enthusiasm for the subject, we're hardly what you'd call experts in the field. But last November, we attended a conference at the University of Denver, where we had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Ranhild Josland from the University of Highlands and Islands Center for Nordic Studies in Orkney. In addition to being a linguist with an expertise in Scandinavian languages, Dr. Josland is also a runologist. Now, we knew she was our kind of person as soon as she started referencing specific saga scenes in casual conversation, because, I mean, how often do you meet someone like that? And then, while attending her workshop on runology, John and I quickly realized that Dr. Josland would be a perfect candidate for a saga brief interview on the subject. Fortunately, she made some time to sit down with us in a small study room at the library to chat about the history of runes. I want to say thank you to Dr. Josland for uh, sharing with us your passion and knowledge in this interview. We'd also like to thank the University of Denver for hosting us and making this interview possible. And a special thanks to Dr. Donna Beth Ellard for organizing the conference and helping us locate a quiet spot for recording. We hope you all enjoy the conversation as much as we did. Well, so first of all, thank you so much for speaking to us. Just tell us um, a little bit about yourself and uh, what it is you do. Yes, I live in the Orkney Islands off the coast of Scotland. Mm-hmm. I haven't always been there. I've been there for seven years mm-hmm. in the Centre for Nordic Studies, which is part of the University of the Highlands and Islands. Mm-hmm. And we do various master's degrees there. And our most popular one is in Viking Studies. Oh, so I have, great. Yes, I have the great pleasure of teaching Viking um runology and Old Norse to the Viking studies students mm. um, and they can be from all over the world because mm-hmm. they can connect we do it on video conferencing so you can sit anywhere you like and connect oh, into really? our course so we can go back to school right, right. now and right. start attending your classes absolutely it's probably uh-huh. long overdue yeah right <laughs> wow that's that's really really wonderful and so that that also means that all of our listeners who who are kind of enthusiastic about Viking literature um, runes and all the things that you do um, if they wanted to, they could apply to get into the program? Yes, they could, yeah, from anywhere in the world. Excellent. You've got to think a bit about time zones. Yes, right, sure. <laughs> if you're on the opposite side of the earth, you might have to watch a recording, <laughs> but otherwise uh-huh. you can connect in live and, and discuss and contribute just like anybody else. Wonderful. So, But you're an expert on runes. I come from a background in Scandinavian language and literature. That's what mm-hmm. I studied. Um, I come from Trondheim in Norway, mm-hmm. and um, there I got a grounding in Old Norse, as part of the undergraduate course in Scandinavian mm-hmm. language and literature. Uh, and then over the years, I've um, had lots of different interests in dialect, in social linguistics, in language history, in um, in runes. So uh, mm-hmm. the more I learn about runes, the cooler I think they are. <laughs> well, uh, so can we just start by having you give us a little bit of a primer on the history of runes uh, for people who might not be familiar with them? Yeah, the runes started in the first century AD, or we don't actually know when they started, but the oldest inscription we have is a Meldor fibula from northern Germany, which is about the middle of the first century. Mm-hmm. Um, and back in those days, there was a runic alphabet that we call the Older Futhark. It's mm-hmm. called Futhark because those letters are the first letters of the alphabet. It goes F, U, Th. Ah, mm-hmm. and so on. Um, so like the ABC. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, and that food like, is shared between the Germanic tribes that were on the go back then. Okay. Um, yeah. And this was before the Viking Age and before the old Norse language, as we know it. The language in um, Scandinavia sounded very different than mm. Proto-Norse. So those are the earliest. And then there were some big uh, changes in the language. Well, mainly it's in the 600s and 700s those changes are happening. Mm-hmm. And from 800 onwards, we have the younger Futhark, uh, which I also call the Viking Age Futhark, mm-hmm. the one that Vikings used to spoke Old Norse. And um, also the Anglo-Saxons had their own Futhark that they developed from the older Futhark, uh, which is more similar to the older Futhark, but with extra letters to represent the sounds that they had gained in this process of language change. Mm-hmm. So in the end, you end up with the Vikings and Anglo-Saxons using Futharks that look very different. So if a description turns up, for example, in northern England, and you're not sure, is this a Viking who wrote this or was it an Anglo-Saxon? <laughs> you can look at their letters and you can tell from the which food art, which shape yeah. it is. So you can tell pretty easily um, on a first look whether something is a Viking Age, younger Futhark, uh, an Anglo-Saxon Futhark, one of the older. Uh, it's relatively easy for you to spot the differences right away. Yeah, if you've got the right letters. Some are very stable. For example, F and R are the same mm-hmm. all the way. Mm-hmm. But then there are others that you can diagnostically tell. For example, the H has it looks like a capital Roman H, but with a slanted crossbar mm-hmm. in the older. And it has two slanted crossbars in the Anglo-Saxon. And the Viking H doesn't look like that at all. <laughs> so if you have one of these diagnostic runes, you can tell just by taking one mm-hmm. look at it. Yeah. You were telling us in the in the workshop um, the other day that the younger Futhark uses uh, single staves. They they have a, a strong preference for single staves, whereas the elder Futhark kind of mix things up. Sometimes they didn't have staves, or yeah. sometimes they had multiple staves, two staves for the H, as you said. Yeah. Um, why do you think that the in the younger Futhark they they switched to a single stave? Is it for clarity, or what do you think drove that that shift? <laughs> Wow, that's a question that nobody can answer, I, I think. I know. <laughs> so what's your best guess? Yeah, but it to me it looks a bit deliberate, like there's a thought behind it. Mm-hmm. But I don't know what that thought actually was. Mm-hmm. If you look at it as a computer would, you can say that they they seem to prefer a single stave, a single vertical with one or more branches coming off it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's their preferred shape. But why they prefer that shape, mm-hmm. I don't know. And it's also been said that they prefer lines that don't go along the grain of the wood if you're carving in wood, because yeah. they would disappear into the grain. So mm. going diagonally or across the grain of the wood is easier for yeah. them. I had uh, some of my students do a rune carving exercise. Mm. Um, so they all got wood out and they, they had to carve uh, some kind of message. Um, I let them choose which uh, version of, of the uh, futhark they wanted to use. But they ran into that same problem that they, they were actually contacting me via email saying, look, when I'm trying to do a certain line, it's going with the grain of the wood and we can't see it. So what am I supposed to do? Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, that does seem choose like... better wood. Yeah, choose better wood. <laughs> Shift the grains. So yeah, it does seem like a, a pra- maybe a practical kind of thing. 
But now the, the younger Futhark also has the difference that it has fewer letters than the elder, right? Uh, yeah, the older one has 24 letters and the younger has only 16. Right. And that seems directly stupid to me because... <laughs> that causes <laughs> we, a lot of problems. Yeah, yeah. In, in that um, period that we call the syncope period, when the language changed from Proto-Norse to Old Norse, we ended up getting new vowels. Mm-hmm. That was eye Im- mutation product vo- vowels such as ö uh, and e and a. Uh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, there's no way of writing those new vowels in runes. And uh, on top of that, they've cut some of the vowels that we did have, <laughs> like or <laughs> so that we could have had used for, mm-hmm. but they went and cut it. So in the Viking Age, younger food, like you end up. Um, using the same rune for different sounds, mm-hmm. like k has to stand in for g as well, and mm-hmm. t has to stand for d as well. So the, the the sound pairs, the voiced and voiceless sound pairs, yeah. will share a rune. Yeah, yeah, and there's vowels that share a mm-hmm. rune as well, like e and e, and um, the u rune can be used for all <laughs> sorts of rounded vowels. Yeah. <laughs> and wow. I imagine that leads to a lot of guesswork when you find runic inscriptions that you are going to run into some words that is really hard to figure out what, what exactly those uh, mm-hmm. sound pairs are referring to. And maybe it even changes the meaning of the inscription based on uh, what that particular uh, rune means, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the most illustrating example is the skull fragment from Ribe in Denmark. Mm-hmm. It's a fragment of a human skull wow. that's had a hole bored through it. Mm-hmm. So you could wear it potentially as an amulet. Um, and um, it has an inscription where the word... Dverg is used. Dwarf. Yeah, dwarf. Yeah. And then how would you spell that using <laughs> right. the younger Futhark? Because they've taken most of the letters you need yeah, so, away. Yeah, so starting with D. You end up using the T. Yeah, yeah. T. And then V. There's no V rune either. Yeah. So, so. you're going to have to use something like... Um, you either going to have to use like an O or, or U, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. and what they did use was U of the... U, yeah. I think they've actually uh, taken that over from the Roman tradition where you see U and oh, T sure, being right. the same yeah. Roman letter as well. Mm-hmm. So T, U, and then E mm-hmm. would be... Uh, it's a front vowel, so I. I, yeah. yes. And then we have R, so at last we've reached... <laughs> A sound that we have a rune for. And then the last one is the G. You said that that's shared with the K sound. Yeah, so we end up with, for Dverik, we end up with Twirk. Twirk. And that's what I've written on the skull fragment. So someone's walking around with a skull fragment with the word twerk on it. Yeah, yeah, but it's not just that. Yeah, it it seems to be a charm against Mm -hmm. headache or something. It's some kind of um, ailment that they call dwarf stroke. Interesting. Yeah. Do they know anything about the, the, the skull fragment itself? And have they looked at kind of what... Where that dates to, or, or what kind of person that was? It's Such an uh, interesting piece it's of jewelry. Eighth century. Mm-hmm. Okay. And possibly an archaeologist could tell you more yeah. about the right, context. Right. <laughs> That's very interesting. So you said that one was found. You've, you've already been referencing runes found all over the place. Uh, mm. Where are runes typically found? 
in the areas where Germanic speaking people mm-hmm. either settled or or lived or traveled to. So mm-hmm. anywhere they went, runes went with <laughs> we them. Can, yeah, yeah. Well, um, the sort of epicenter for the early runes seems to be in southern Scandinavia, so Denmark, mm-hmm. southern Sweden, typically, and then also in. Um, in the Netherlands and Germany, um, and then they come over to Britain with the Anglo-Saxons, uh, and uh, Scandinavia develops its own um, younger food archetypes. Time goes along, and then mm-hmm. the Viking expansion starts yeah. at the same time as the younger Futh Ark. So they take them over again to Britain. So that's why Britain has got two mm-hmm. types of runes <laughs> going right. on, um, and to the islands of the North Atlantic, Faroe mm-hmm. Islands, Iceland, Orkney, Shetland, Greenland, mm-hmm. um, and these places are quite rich in runic finds. But then you get stray finds in places where they didn't settled but traveled to such as Constantinople. Yeah. We love talking about the Vikings in Constantinople. Yeah. yeah it's one of our favorite settings. <laughs> yeah. I have to ask, since you're from Trondheim, are there any in Trondheim? Yes. There are. Yes, plenty, plenty. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> um, and and uh, I know that you have uh, heard about runes in the uh, North America. Mm-hmm. Well, what is your opinion of the, uh, the those those finds? Um. I at the moment. You needn't be diplomatic. Yeah, you no. don't have to be the, we've already we've already gone over some of this on, yeah. on the podcast. I haven't seen any that I think are genuine yet. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's impossible because we do have the Lanzo Meadows yeah. site. So if anything turns out in Lanzo Meadows in an excavation, then I might be more willing to believe yeah, it sure. if it's got an archaeological context. Exactly. Um, but the likes of the Kensington runestone and the Heavener runestone, yeah. I think are modern. And the Kensington one has a very fascinating history, actually, because um, there was a very late runic tradition in a um, district called Dalarna in Sweden. Um, and these are valleys up in the middle of nowhere Mm -hmm. so they have a very conservative very fascinating dialect even today Mm -hmm. Um, and there was an unbroken runic tradition just there after everybody else had stopped using runes there were folk (laughs) folk in Dalarna still teaching the younger generations to use runes alongside the Roman alphabet and then one of these guys <laughs> came over to America, to uh-huh. Kensington, and uh, made the Kensington Runestone in 1899. So they were training their kids that late, uh, in the 19th century, think, before still learning. I think the person who made the Kensington Runestone never trained his kids because his daughter became quite desperate with people contacting her about the Runestone later mm. in her life. Uh, but I think he had learned runes back in Sweden where he come, mm-hmm. came from and he made the Kensington runestone as a practical joke <laughs> um, but th- it would have been fun if he had admitted it being a practical joke after some time right. Right. but <laughs> whether he was too embarrassed or enjoyed it too much mm-hmm. yeah. how everybody was fooled and so on then it, 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 for some reason it didn't come with that mm-hmm. uh, I never said it was a joke. He yeah. died still pretending that he'd found it rather than made it. <laughs> um, but I think it's really fascinating how 
that stone has attracted such a great following and mm-hmm. it means such a lot to people yes. to connect to and and um, help them develop their own identity and so on. Yeah. What, what sorts of uses do you find runes put to? Um, I know obviously for monuments, but what other kind of things do, do they use runes for? It's different for different time periods. So the earliest runes are often found on jewelry and on weapons. Mm -hmm. And in Denmark, they had a habit of depositing weapons in bogs uh, and that preserves them so beautifully. Mm -hmm. So it's not just on the metal part of the weapon, but also on the shaft that we find runes. Um, And um, then there was a period of uh, monumental commemorative stones and Sweden is the place to go to for yes. those <laughs> so in the Viking Age and the conversion period and for a while after the conversion to in the 11th century they put all these beautiful decorated you know with the uh, fabulous snakes right. and dragon shapes that interlace with one another and bite each other's tail and mm-hmm. the inscriptions written inside the body of the animal and they're so stunning to look at but there's thousands of them in Sweden mm-hmm. and then from the medieval period after the conversion we have a very rich uh, urban material mm-hmm. um, from um, for example Bergen in Norway is a very rich site just from one little plot where there was a warehouse in old um, Hanseatic port um, there was a fire there in 1955 it, this is the Bryggen as a world heritage site so it's got a line of these warehouses where they've obviously repaired and rebuilt and so on but the bottom layers go down go back to the medieval period so mm. it's been the same family or company or, or uh, warehouse has been sitting on the same plot since mm-hmm. the medieval period and then um, when when that burnt um not all of it just a part of it in in 1955 in that excavation that followed turned up over 600 runic wow. inscriptions so if they had excavated the whole of medieval sure. Bergen, they would probably get thousands. There must be, that must be, first of all, a, a, a terribly difficult job to catalogue all that material. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's taken decades. Right? And, um, and also the material is very diverse and very everyday. Um, and it's so different from these monumental runes that are very kind of serious. Yeah. Like, for example... Thorfinn raised this stone in memory of Thorgeir, his son who fell in the east, that kind of text. Whereas the Bergen material is, um, I love you, love me, Gunnhild, kiss me. (laughs) (laughs) Or my absolute favourite from Bergen is, Gida says, Go home now. <laughs> no, <laughs> really. <laughs> well, we know it's, there's references in the sagas as well to these uh, rune sticks that are carved for immediate and prosaic purposes. Right? Think of uh, Gisli mm-hmm. visiting his brother, uh, and when Thorkel won't come out to visit him, Gisli carves a rune stick and throws it through the window, mm-hmm. so that his brother will come out to talk to him. And we're not told what he carves, mm-hmm. but whatever he carves is sort of a very basic message to his Quick brother message, that he flings yeah. in the window. Yeah, yeah. So, so today you would send somebody a text on your yes. phone. Yes, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Instead, it's a, it's a stick with a little yeah. message carved in it. Yeah, or some other thing that you've got. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's really interesting because I, I, I've often thought of runes and rune carving as a kind of a specialized thing. 
that not everyone could uh, either do or or read. How literate, when you look at the, these kinds of rune uh, inscriptions, how literate do you think that the, the average person was in terms of runic inscription? I think by the time you get to the 12th century, 12th and 13th century, and 14th as well, which is the bulk of this uh, urban material, yeah. I think it was very widespread. Mm. Um, and um, from Trondheim, there's a little toy sword. It's made out of wood. It's, it's um, as if it's made for like a six-year-old, for example, mm-hmm. a little short one. And um, on it, it says, Ivar owns the sword. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so it, it kind of tells you that the person who wrote it, maybe it was his mother, yeah. expected people to be able to read that. Right, and return it to him when he yeah. leaves it somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. It's interesting, too, because they're, they're, they're still using runes, even though they've obviously been Christianized and they have a Roman alphabet that they can use, um, but they're still carving in runes. Yeah, I think it comes down to the material, mm. um, because the Roman alphabet seems to be preferred for those situations where you can actually sit down with... Vellum and pen yeah. mm-hmm. and ink. Yeah, you got a lot of curves in the in the letters. And, and the runes seems to be for those situations where you pick up the nearest thing and you always had a knife and mm-hmm. there was always some wood or bone or whatever lying around that you could scratch some runes on. Though <laughs> it's easier at hand and doesn't cost as much. Yes, as right, right. Writing well, in pen. Speaking of that, um, you were talking to us. This was uh, uh, during the conference where we we're attending. Um, you were talking to us about the number of uh, rune rows that are actually appear to be sort of practices of the runic alphabet, right? That people would have been training themselves on this or maybe using it as a reference. Mm. Um, can you tell us about how common those are? Very common. Mm. Actually, I haven't counted it up, but just mm. from an impression, uh, the inscription of the rune row itself mm-hmm. or part of it, usually the start of it, Fruit Ark, is the most common thing mm-hmm. you can find anywhere. <laughs> so, um, but those could have several purposes, of course. Mm-hmm. So um, something to look at while you're writing or a practice could be one purpose. Mm-hmm. But then you find it on unexpected objects, like things that seem to be high status. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a sword, for example. This is an Anglo-Saxon uh, artifact. It comes from the River Thames. It's called the Battersea and uh, it has the whole Anglo-Saxon runic alphabet written on it and it's a very beautifully made sword with Mm -hmm. different colour metal inlay must have Mm -hmm. cost a fortune so why have the whole futhark on it? Um, And also from Orkney a Scandinavian futhark high stages object is a very beautiful bear's tooth Mm. it's been pierced so you can wear it as a pendant Mm -hmm. or amulet and with the start of the food arc, it's just food arc yeah, on mm-hmm. it, carved out very beautifully in double lines. So those do not seem to be practice pieces. Right, yeah, because they don't have the whole alphabet. No, yeah, themselves. yeah. And, and also, why why put so much work and money into it? Mm-hmm, yeah. But the practice piece would be more like a random stick that the alphabet mm-hmm, is written sure. on. Yeah. Does that does that suggest that the, the act of writing runes has... Um, some I, I don't know if it's a lot of people are going to assume that there's a magical quality right. to mm. them talismanic yeah 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 that must have meant something to them mm-hmm. to have writing on it yeah 
That's so fascinating. <laughs> um, uh, speaking of, of trying to figure out problems, we, um, we noticed in the images that you showed us as part of your presentation here at the conference that there was a, one of the Bractiats and, and on it was the, the inscription Alu, mm. right? Mm. Um, we were actually asked about the prevalence of Alu in runic writings mm. for our podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh, so first of all, maybe you could explain what a Bractiat is. Yes, it's a gold medallion. Okay. They imitate Roman medallions, mm-hmm. but they develop their own Germanic way of doing it. Mm-hmm. They come from the older Fusak periods of pre-Viking age, usually from between 450 to 600 AD. Mm-hmm. And um, they're made of gold and fantastic. So you've got often a, a human head and then animals... Uh, or birds on it, but they're very stylized, and mm. you often see them in profile. So you have to train your eye a bit to see yeah. what they are. <laughs> oh, interesting. And some of them have runes, and some of them don't. Mm-hmm. Okay. And and so the, the from what we have found, the the alu rune kind of shows up every once in a while. Um, what is the significance of of alu, as far as you know? It means ale yes. or beer. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, so you're walking around with a medallion on your chest that says beer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm not an expert on um, pre-Christian religion. Uh-huh. So I can only take it so far. But uh, what I've read anyway is that um, beer was included in the ritual practices. So you would pass round bowls of beer and ritually drink. Mm-hmm. Um, and you would also give the gods offerings of beer, yeah. uh, both locally at home during the more private bloots at home mm-hmm. uh, and more publicly and in, in the big bloot. Yeah. Um, so it's probably got to do with that. But uh, listeners who are interested in hearing more should read um, Mindy McLeod and Bernard Meese's um, uh, Runic Amulets and Magic Object. Okay, perfect. Wait, we can a... put that up on the site. Uh-huh. Yeah, we'll give a link to the, to the uh, so you can go buy it or, or find it for yourself. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's a bit controversial because they have a whole new theory on what Alu means there. Really? They prefer to read as dedication and not literally as beer. That's uh-huh. disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were, we were all set to get our own. But yeah. uh, there's another thing about the Brachtiap that you showed us, which is that the Alu was reversed. Mm. Right? It was written right to left rather than left to right. And we have a listener, Ingrid Ringler, who wanted to know about the uh, the writing of runes back to front or mm. left to right or right to left. Um, and how common is it to see them written in different directions? Yeah, I think for the particular bracket, it might have been that um, they made the stamp first. And then if you stamp the design on to that little gold disc, Mm-hmm. Uh, it'll be mirror image after you've stamped uh-huh. it. So if you want it to appear the right way, you have to make the stamp mirror image, uh-huh. and that can be tricky. Uh-huh. But that said, the early runic inscriptions don't worry much about writing direction at mm-hmm. all because mm-hmm. they didn't go to school. It's only when we go to school that we're trained to write left to right. Mm-hmm. Before that, young children write in any direction they please. And it's a bit like that with runes too, that they can be uh, bottom to top <laughs> or right to left or back and forth. Bustrophodon mm-hmm. um, is when they turn back at the end of each line, mm-hmm. so they snake down, right. um, like uh, plowing. 
That, that, that can must be so frustrating when you find a new rune sometimes and you have to figure out, you're, you're expecting to read it one way. So yeah. you have to really tr- retrain your brain to, to be open to the direction you're going to read it in. Yeah. That's so funny. Uh, so uh, on the, we've been talking about kind of runes as artifacts, but t- tell us a little bit about the actual process of rune carving. What is that like? And have you tried it? <laughs> <laughs> Not seriously. Uh-huh. Um, I did an evening class a couple of years ago that was called Practical Runology, but <laughs> my college stipulated in their health and safety prescriptions that we were not allowed to use sharp implements. <laughs> well, well, how are you going to make a lot harder? That's not very practical. No, no. So, so it was aimed at artists, so we ended up carving runes in cheese <laughs> and, <laughs> and baking runic cakes and motel. Oh did runes yeah yeah and it really made me think about what other types of material that could have had runes mm-hmm. on it because what we're left with is what survived mm-hmm. sure uh, but who knows what else they might have written runes on that right. didn't survive <laughs> lots of cheeses just lying around <laughs> right, remember the cheese press there's a special cheese press in Yal saga and when a cheese is stolen they can reconstitute the cheese because of the shape of that one press, yeah. and know that it was stolen from this how, house. That's how Halged is discovered, isn't right, it? Exactly. Right, exactly. And yeah. so I wonder, is there, are there runes into the cheese top you that would allow that. you to yeah. sort of put it back together and know this is, you know, uh, more have made this cheese? That would be awesome if they found because uh, they could find the cheese press. Right, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then also for practice, uh, they could have written runes in the snow, mm-hmm. in the sand, sure. in coal. Why, <laughs> yeah. why start with a knife? Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so outside of knives, obviously we know that they carved runes, runes with knives. What other materials are they carving on and, and what tools do you know that they're using to do this? Especially for those, those larger monuments. There's probably an archaeological expert who could answer this mm-hmm. much mm-hmm. better than me. But from what I've seen... Those that are not carved are sometimes punched with mm. those little dots. Interesting. Um, sort of or, style, just hundreds of little dots? Yeah, yeah, like the Meldor fibula I mentioned before, the mm. earliest unique description of all. It's punched, lots of little, mm-hmm. little dots. There's a very fascinating inscription from Orkney that tells us what uh, implement was used to carve it or rather what the carver would like us to believe. Uh (laughs) It says, um, this, or these runes were carved by the man most skilled in runes in the best, (laughs) (laughs) most skilled in runes in the Western Ocean with the axe that Gauk Trandilsson owned in the south of the country. Really? Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) So somebody's really bragging. No kidding. That's great. And are they well carved? They're beautiful. Yes, they're well. fantastic. And it also partly uses cipher script, uh, cipher oh, runes yeah. to disguise. Um, I think it's Dessa Runa. These runes mm-hmm. is in mm-hmm. cipher. Oh, we haven't talked about ciphers on the uh, on, on this, in this interview yet, but uh, I know you mentioned them in your workshop, and we we just loved that that part. Can you describe the ciphers? I know it was a visual thing, so listeners are going to have to bear with us. Um, but can you describe the ciphers for us, and we'll just put some pictures up to represent them. Yeah. Um, 
there are different ciphers, but mm. the one that's used in this particular inscription and also elsewhere in Orkney is um, based on um, counting the number of runes and dividing them into groups mm-hmm. and then uh, numbering the rune within the group. So first you make three equal groups, mm-hmm. So you get six, five, and five. So in the older food, you would work better because there you get eight, eight, and eight. But right. yeah. yeah, but here you have fuse arke, and then hn i a s, and then t b m l j. That's the hard you, one. Yeah, <laughs> and then you number the groups, and just to make it more interesting, then number the last group, number one. The middle group is number two, and the first group, Futhark, is number three. So, the right. reverse direction of what we'd expect. Yeah, well, it wouldn't yeah. be a cipher if it were just straightforward. Yeah, right. but, but within the group, you read left to right. Mm, yeah, so, so they're switching it up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's so, really clever. So, if you want to write F, for example, F is the first rune in the third group, and then uh, you can draw this out in any way you like. For example, like a little tree, the stem or stave, mm-hmm. and then one branch on one side to say the first rune, and then three branches on the other side to say the third group. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then you can disguise it more if you're um, more inventive. For mm-hmm. example, there's one from Bergen that has lots of little faces, Little guys with beard. <laughs> a bit like your beard. Right, yeah, right. <laughs> so what letter? My, two, yeah. my two-sided beard, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if you plot your beard <laughs> and have three plots on one side and one on that the other, right. that would spell F. That's like F. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to do that now. Yeah. <laughs> what rune are you feeling like today? You right, come in right. with the, the different... That's fascinating. I'm going to write alu. <laughs> right. <laughs> So um, the next question is about runic decline, because you mentioned that uh, there there are, of course, uh, kind of uh, post-Reformation runes, and they kind of keep writing them. Um, but rune, runic writing does decline in the Germanic world um, mm. at some point. Can you describe that decline? Uh, what? Why does it happen? And um, is it because specifically of the arrival of the Latin alphabet, or what else is happening? I think ultimately, yes, it is. But it's not like the church stamped them out or anything. Right. They were quite happy with runes coexisting with the Roman alphabet. And people also often wrote uh, Christian texts mm-hmm. in runes. Yeah. So sometimes in Latin, even Pater Noster or Ave Maria in runes. So yeah. it's not like runes are pagan script or anything. That's not why. I think it's just a very slow decline as the more continental-oriented culture penetrates Scandinavia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and runes are still used in the 1200s, 1300s, 1400s, mm-hmm. and so it start to dwindle. Mm-hmm. And then by the time you get to the 1500s and the printing press... Comes, right. becomes common. Right, yeah. yeah. Who's, who's carving runes after that? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> then runes, runes are out, but they have already been dwindling before printing mm. becomes common. I think runes aren't, aren't tr- nobody's trying to destroy runes, they just go out of fashion. That's mm-hmm, why, yeah. and that's why they last longer in more remote eras. Yeah. 
you said that runes kind of went out of fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, they seem to be in fashion again. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so can you speak about uh, how, why you think runes are, are kind of popularized? And, and when, do you, when, if you had to pinpoint, when did that start happening? Ooh, it started happening in the 1500s. Really? Yeah. So they didn't really oh. go away for that long. And no, <laughs> as soon as they dwindled enough that a few people still knew them, but most mm-hmm. people didn't really use them. There was an antiquarian interest that started. Yeah. And the pioneer was... Ule Worm. Or oh, the famous Ule Worm. Yes. Worm, worm. <laughs> We've talked about him before. Yeah, yeah. But we never, we always hesitate to how to pronounce his name. Right, yeah, right. yeah. Worm. But but he worm. he okay. wrote this fantastic book where he was trying to make drawings and descriptions of all the runic inscriptions of. Denmark uh-huh. um, and uh, similarly in Sweden there were scholarly works like that mm-hmm. um, uh, and uh, so those were the early pioneers so of the kind of new interest in huh. runes but then it starts booming in the 19th century along with the new interest in all things Viking right. came on with the national romantic period um, and uh, the new availability of uh, translated sagas. Um, so we've got all these Victorians, yeah. who, <laughs> and also on the continent mm-hmm. and in Scandinavia, who yeah. have now rediscovered mm-hmm. so, some roots and are turning away from the Greek and Roman classics and finding that actually the Germanic literature is something that we can connect to mm. in search of our identity. Mm. Um, and um, then from that, there was an occult movement that somehow mm. found the runes and took them and started using them for their own purposes. Mm. And that was um, in in Germany. Um, and uh, they use um, runes not as a script, but as a way of divination or, or magic so and and reading runes mm. to them means to read some kind of deeper philosophical slash magic meaning into yes. each symbol not into the text um, that was the folkish movement mm-hmm. in Austrian Germany uh, in the late 1800s uh, and then the Nazis mm-hmm. come and discover this yes. and um, integrated into their ideology. Mm-hmm. So uh, we see runes appearing on the Nazi uniforms, right. like the right. SS, yes. two mm-hmm. runes Rune SS. Guesses. There were other runes too, like the older Futhark O rune was very popular with them because um, the name for that one is Odal, which means inheritable property uh, and they put a whole lot of new meaning into that meaning aha it's inheritance heritage uh, cultural heritage mm-hmm. race right. the uh, germanic race and so uh-huh. on so it, it becomes a symbol of racial purity for mm-hmm. them and appears on their uniforms right. um, and then later after the war we see runes Partly retaining that um, in in the right wing mm-hmm. um, circles, but also more benignly, I think, in yeah. in the circles which are not right wing, but mm-hmm. interested in occultism and mysticism mm-hmm. without being racist or anything. Right, right, right. Yeah. Interesting. Right. And now nowadays, uh, certainly those elements are, are, are still there, uh, but you see a lot of runes in tattoos. 
Right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, sure. Right. Yeah, and they're completely harmless. Yeah. I'm often asked to write runes for tattoos for people, oh, yeah. and they yeah. want the names of their children or oh. or the place they come from. Or yeah, it's yeah. it's. Do you charge them at all, or are you just so? No, generous? no, I just give it to them. <laughs> now that this is going out, right. I should. might have to start charging. <laughs> yeah. Be careful. Nominal fee. Nominal fee. Yeah. Um, so a last question. Um, do you have a favorite runic carving? Because you've looked at so many um, and things like she says, go home now, uh, are just fantastic. Is That's there... one of my favorites. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a very rude one from Oslo. That's also one of my favorites. I might not say that on the podcast. Oh, I see. <laughs> Maybe tell us after. All right, you can tell us that one off the air. <laughs> no, my, my favorite is one that comes from a place called Breckness in Orkney. Mm-hmm. Um, and the text is nothing special because it says fiber. So <laughs> there's no meaning in the yeah. text. It's damaged. We only have a, a, a little sequence, mm-hmm. and there's been more text before and after. The reason it's my favorite is that I was there when it was found. Oh, wow! And. Um, <laughs> It was a very romantic evening in 2001. (laughs) My boyfriend, he's my husband now, but my boyfriend then, Christopher G, and I were uh, having a romantic walk along the beach Mm -hmm. in Orkney. um, And we came up to this old building, it's a 16th century stately Mm -hmm. mansion house, um, which is falling down now, it's in ruins. and there's outbuildings and there's what we call dikes, like sto- stone mm-hmm. uh-huh. walls. Yep. And um, and uh, one of these were crumbling uh, and some stones had fallen onto the grass. And Christopher saw the sun, the last rays of the setting sun shining diagonally onto one of these stones. Really? And spotted the runes. Oh, it's like out of a movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah, so he picked it up and showed it to me and said, Right, do you think these are runes? But I was only 21 years old at that point and I hadn't studied runes yet. So all I could say was, I don't know. <laughs> but we took it into the museum and uh, Michael Barnes from London came up. Uh, not so long after and he said they were genuine so wow. they're now included in the, the corpus of British Runish How nice. Wow. Do you have a picture of yourself and your husband with uh, this stone before? This was before uh, cell phones and selfies and all that stuff. Yeah, no, we didn't even have a camera with us. Oh, no. Yeah, because if it had been now, I would have photographed the fine spot before we moved it. But in right, 2001, yeah. we, didn't, we didn't have a digital camera. Was, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's ever be funny for some of our younger listeners to to hear yeah. how life was different back then. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, would you be able to go into the you know where they're holding this this particular stone and have them pull it out so you guys can get your picture with it finally? Ooh, I hadn't thought of that. It's in the Orkney Museum in a glass case. And I mean, you you brought it in, right? You have you should have special. I think you have some kind of spotter's rights or something. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's really wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking to us. Oh, yes, thank you for inviting lovely. me. Uh, and we'll try to make sure that not too many of our listeners contact you about tattoos. A <laughs> <laughs> charge per letter. Excellent. Ah, that's a good idea. <laughs> thank right. you very much. Thank, thank you. Fyrir sér alvaran Það rauður loginn fram